This is a strange journey. Where we're headed is not yet clear. For the community to carry on, change is the new normal and being adaptive is the only strategy that works. Those words, true today, could have been written about the communities described in the Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story of a people of faith struggling to keep up with the Holy Spirit in rapidly changing and unsettled times. This fall, we pastors of Second Presbyterian Church are offering a sermon series on Acts called Catching Up with the Spirit. We invite you to join us during this season of change as we seek guidance from the text to follow God's lead, trusting God continues to work in, through, and alongside God's people to bring healing and wholeness to everyone. Join us as we seek to catch up with the Spirit. Let us pray. Holy God, may we find healing in the shade of your word. Amen. When I came home from Davis Elementary School in Montgomery, Alabama, I was not allowed to watch television, and I was expressly forbidden to watch the gothic soap opera that high schoolers kept talking about, Dark Shadows. Of course, mom couldn't keep an eye on all six kids at home at once, so I would sometimes sneak a peek. And I was usually disappointed. Dark Shadows was a soap opera, so its pace was very slow and my pace was very fast. And because of its pace, I didn't find it that scary, except for the beginning. This was in the days when the show was filmed in black and white. A show called Dark Shadows should never have been filmed in color as it was later. What a mistake. But the show that I watched then in black and white had this eerie music playing in the background as the camera sneaked past trees and a porch and a mansion. And you knew that just somewhere in those woods or in the house or maybe right behind you was lurking Barnabas Collins the family vampire. The show played off the idea that dark is the realm of evil, providing cover for bad decisions and for those who would do harm. Now, the show didn't invent the idea of dark and shadows being sinister. Poets, writers, and parents wanting their children home before dark have worked at the danger angle, physical and moral, for centuries. Even the Bible speaks metaphorically in that way. A few examples from the New Testament. At the beginning of John's Gospel, we are told that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus in Luke speaks of evil one day being exposed. What's done in darkness will come to light, he said. And 2 Thessalonians speaks of the faithful as children of light. With so many negative connotations to shadow and darkness, some light-skinned folks have assumed superiority because of their skin tone, which doesn't make any sense when probably all the Bible's writers and Jesus himself were dark-skinned. No, the biblical writers were not concerned with hues. They were concerned with what could be hidden from others out of shame or cunning or what could be done to others for selfish gain. Also, and this is even more important to understand, the Bible writers were as creative with their words and images as visual artists are with their colors and hues. 
Like Rembrandt, who so enjoyed painting scenes from their stories, the gospel writers played with light and dark, finding virtue and vice in each of them. The gospel writers were as aware then as we are today that the violent and unholy can be committed in broad daylight without apology or shame. Barbara Brown Taylor reminded us in her 2009 Edmonds Lectures of how darkness can be the realm of the good and holy. It can be the realm of divine mystery, of renewing sleep and Sabbath rest, of soulful prayer, of interactions between people when the guard is let down, one's heart opens up. It can be the place of blooming love, the place of cover and protection. There are things to learn and kindnesses shown that can only happen in the dark sometimes. Just to offer a few scriptural endorsements of dark and shadows, God separates light from dark and sees both as good. The psalmist looks at the night sky and is in awe at the greatness and goodness of the Creator. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and there begins a new journey of faith. And in Psalm 121, God promises to be our shade at our right hand, providing protection and relief from the blinding and burning light of the sun. And then there's our passage. Listen. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the moment of this passage, the church is exploding, even though officially there is not yet something that could be called the church. The community of those who seek direction by following Jesus is growing by the day, but this movement is not yet seen as any separate entity with nonprofit status or representatives to send to ecumenical conferences. Jesus' followers have not yet left the Jewish faith or have been kicked out by it. Now, later in Acts, when Gentile diets and fashions and customs become acceptable within this community of Jesus' followers, then you really start to see a separation, a coalition, a naming of leaders, an establishment of rights, a formalizing of rules, but not now. What we have right now is a growing reputation. The reputation of the movement and its leaders, the apostles particularly, Peter particularly, is exploding. The explosion is not due to any effective organizing or advertising, but to word on the streets that the apostles are changing people's lives. With their preaching and teaching, they are changing minds and hearts. 
The gospel writer, Luke, who is the author of Acts, isn't subtle about this. He's saying that there's also found in their presence healing. There is found healing in their shadow. He simply describes miracles of bodily healing in the presence of apostles, and especially Peter. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are clean again. And as stories about the apostles spread, the masses gather in Jerusalem. And they are of all types. They are rich and poor, healthy and sick, excited and desperate, privileged and dispossessed. Our passage focuses on those who come to find relief, the poor, the sick, and the desperate. They come to Solomon's colonnade basically a portico on the side of the temple, for that is where the disciples, as Jesus did before them, preach and teach. And knowing that Peter only has so much time and attention to give, the sick lie down or are laid down on the path leading to the colonnade so that maybe when Peter walks by, his shadow will pass over them and they'll know healing. Healing in the shadow. That's the image that I want to stick with you today. I want it to remain with you, for in that image we have an ethical question with a miracle wrapping. The ethical question that Luke is asking of Jesus' followers then and Jesus' followers today is this Will harm or healing? be found in your shadow? Will the shadow cast by your existence in the world be one that brings grace or disgrace? Now, sure, the question is indirect. I mean, that is how narrative theology works. We are to remember that every time that Luke talks about Peter, Luke is talking about the church his church, any church. And any failing of Peter is a failing of the church in Luke's eyes. And Peter's every graceful word and deed illustrates the possibility of what the church can be and should be. And in this story, Luke is asking Jesus' followers to look around. Do you see those who are looking for some healing and for some hope? Do you see those who are looking for some peace and calm to be restored to their lives? Do you see the lonely, those thirsting for meaning and for purpose? Do you see the disenfranchised and the oppressed? Do you see the sick wanting healing of their pain and disease or healing from their fear of death? Do you see the poor in spirit? Do you see the poor in means? Luke is asking of the church, what will they experience in your shadow? Now, we Americans today are not Middle Eastern then, so we might miss an important detail of the story. There is an irony to be found in the social location of these people lying on the side of a path that leads to Solomon's colonnade. Basically an enormous portico, the colonnade is one of the last remnants of the temple that King Solomon built. 
And Solomon was known for his faith, for his love of wisdom, and for his greed, which drained his people of their resources, leading in the next generation to revolt and the nation splitting in two. Luke's readers know this. And they know that even after Solomon's temple was destroyed, King Herod, a man of little, if any, faith and great lust for power, rebuilt the temple, which includes this surviving portico. And they also know that Jesus was almost stoned at this very colonnade, even though he had just performed acts of compassion, even though he had just helped people needing help because he was seen as a threat to religious powers of the day. It is so easy for Luke's audience to see what we might miss, that the reputation of these apostles was spreading not because they were Solomon's or Herod's who built things to see, but because they were bringing good news to those whom Solomon and Herod often overlooked or denied. Luke in his telling of his story, wants to make sure that Jesus' followers of his and our day are living up to the reputation of these apostles. Are people hurt or helped in the shadow of those who claim to follow Jesus? That is an ethical question Christians and churches should continually ask of themselves. I mean, it's why we offer confession every Sunday. It's why we enter into silence and prayer to hear a voice other than our own. It's why we must give ourselves not only financial audits, we must give ourselves moral audits of our lives and of our corporate ministry. It is why we continue to remind ourselves that even though we need the colonnade protections offered by the state, we exist to cast our own shadow. It is why Colossians says something frequently quoted in weddings, but which should give us regular pause in considering our lives, that our works do follow us. A different way of speaking of the shadow cast by our lives. We make a difference in the world. People are hurt. People are helped by our being here. And we should be constantly asking ourselves, which is happening because we exist? When this pandemic began, oh my goodness, people's lives were disrupted and a lot of needs were exposed and existing tensions exploded in the streets. And I think now more than ever, or at least for a long time, people are looking for some shade. They're looking for some rest and relief and healing. And they're asking what can be found under the shadow that we cast. And I could take this opportunity to be negative because we all know that every Christian and every church could do better. Like I said, Luke doesn't hide Peter's faults. But because I am who I am, just in general, I think that we grow better not on a platform of shame, but by growing into the image of God, I tend to focus on existing evidence of grace and goodness and start there and build there. 
and I am grateful for a shadow this church has cast during the pandemic. You may not know this, but I know you wouldn't be surprised that in the uncertainty of the early days of the pandemic, your finance committee immediately began tracking income and spending to make sure we don't get in trouble, to make sure we don't go down into a hole. But a decision was made right away not to cut by a dime. What we give to ministries and agencies that meet crisis needs. And the HELP Fund was put to more aggressive use. And the Mountain Avenue Fund was named as a recipient of all undesignated gifts and bequests. And the relief offering was made a weekly part of worship. And you heard that the offering exceeds now $40,000. And your giving to the church has remained strong. And meanwhile, in light of protests, an effort was given to listening and understanding. In light of social isolation, an effort was given to increased phone calls. In light of social distancing, an effort was given to worship and education being offered online. In light of confusion, an effort was given to increased communication. Trying hard to cast a shadow that'll bring some relief and blessing and hope to people's lives. I'm not saying it's enough. I mean, the passage wants us constantly to audit ourselves so as to reduce any harm we might be creating, even inadvertently, and increase healing. But if the church is seen in Peter, and if we are seeing the church in this passage right now, we must notice first that people seek our shadow. And then let's notice where grace is found in its shade. And when we see it, let's rejoice and be glad because it is something to celebrate and to build upon. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.